This is Yuda Kohen, Vision Movement, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. These last couple days have been a bit surreal for me, and for many Israelis, really, because we got to see Jonathan Pollard finally come home. I actually have a lot to say on the subject because I've been seeing what I consider to be some very disturbing and unhealthy behavior in regards to Pollard from a lot of pro-Israel Jews. Uh, But before I get into it, I'd like to take a few minutes to share something that's been happening to me personally over the last week. The Daily Beast dropped a very, very long feature about me last Friday, and it was picked up by the Drudge Report and elsewhere and seems to still be making the rounds. And a lot of people have been asking me to respond to some of the things that were written about me in the piece. So first of all, the title goes way beyond what I'd call sensationalist. The bizarre rise of the Manhattan prep school gangster turned enigmatic West Bank rabbi. The Daily Beast clearly turned the hype dial way up on that title. The reference to prep school gangster, by the way, comes from a series of New York Magazine features by Nancy Jo Sales in the late 1990s, where she wrote about a teenage subculture I was part of that brought together teenagers from across New York City's ethnic and socioeconomic spectrum and created a world organized into defined crews with activities ranging from graffiti and small-time con games to large-scale drug operations. That subculture, minus the crews, was to a certain extent portrayed in Larry Clark's 1995 film Kids, but I'm not sure it's been depicted in any major media since. In any case, I remember that the journalist writing those stories back then bought us drugs, alcohol, steak dinners, and some people I know got much more than that, just to get us to speak. And of course, everyone made sure that their names would be changed for the story. In this Daily Beast feature that just came out, I'm described as having been part of a gang of rich white teenagers, which isn't exactly accurate. Our crew was pretty diverse, both in terms of ethnicity and class. But I'd say the majority of kids came from working-class Irish families. Most didn't make it through high school, and a good chunk ended up in the military. I guess me included, if we count the Israeli army. In any case, despite the hyped-up title, I'd like to think the writer tried to give me a fair shake. And there are definitely some parts of the piece that seem true to what I'm about. But for the most part, it's pretty much a sensationalist caricature of who I am. And one thing I've realized is that the way the piece depicted me might actually be how a lot of people see me. Those who know me best or regularly engage with my ideas and really understand my positions on a deep level seem to find the piece really offensive. But a lot of people whether friends or foes who have a sense of what I'm saying or maybe understand a piece of it here and there but don't get the holistic message or vision, tended to think the piece really did me justice. I get the sense that the major challenge the journalist faced when writing it was that he couldn't step out of his own ideological paradigm enough to really understand what I was saying. Overall, he framed the piece as his own internal struggle over whether or not he was going to become a disciple of mine which ultimately led to him framing me as some kind of cult leader, seducing young idealistic Jews with a messianic combination of left and right positions. But that's actually where I think he most fundamentally went wrong. Aside from the fact that the vision movement includes many very intelligent and creative thought leaders and allows space for diverse perspectives and conclusions when it comes to the question of Jewish liberation in the 21st century, 
The ideas I personally subscribe to aren't a combination of different isms glued together, but rather what I consider to be a holistic understanding of Jewish identity, our historic purpose, and how to overcome the unique challenges of our specific chapter of the human adventure. The questions I want young Jews to ask themselves are what are the goals of Jewish history? What's already been achieved? What's left to accomplish? And what are the obstacles in our way? The educational programs we run at the Vision Movement offer students and young professionals exposure to perspectives from across the Israeli and Palestinian sociopolitical spectrums, while deepening their connection to their own people's story and giving them the tools to formulate their own unique Jewish liberation ideologies that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while cleaning up its mess. Zionism was the movement that brought the Jewish people back to life. But it made a mess, and we shouldn't deny that. It was actually a very interesting political movement because the Jewish people are so unique in history. There's no other ancient people that was broken and scattered throughout the world yet managed to, for the most part, maintain its identity in exile for nearly 2,000 years and then return to its land, revive its language, and attain political independence. It's unheard of. And because we're so unique in history, it's very hard to force us into any specific box. On the one hand, Jews are certainly from this land, and we're ever only living outside of it as a result of an injustice committed against us. But on the other hand, Zionism definitely utilized colonialist methods and tools in its effort to bring our people back to life and restore our national framework. And whether it was avoidable or not, it's something we shouldn't hide from. The Daily Beast claimed that in my eyes, Zionist Jews can't be colonizers because we're an indigenous people. But that's not my position. I think I've been very clear, both in my conversations with the journalist and in several other places accessible online, that I'm very much against using the idea of Jewish indigeneity as a pro-Israel talking point. As far as I'm concerned, being indigenous and behaving as a colonizer aren't mutually exclusive, because one is an identity and a relationship, and the other is a behavior. A native people can theoretically act as a colonizer. I'd argue that such actions would be a negation of our people's identity and values, but that only makes the fact that we engaged in colonialist behavior all the more problematic. And that really brings us to the question of what the Jewish people came back to our land to be. I believe very strongly that the children of Israel came back to life in modern times in order to help create a better world for all humankind. That requires us to identify systems of oppression and work using all of the tools that the Zionist movement's successes placed at our disposal to side with the oppressed of the world, challenge injustice, and help usher in a new historic era more in line with the vision of our prophets. And as hard as this might be for some of us, it requires us to start at home. We need to confront and rethink our treatment of Palestinians. Because at the end of the day, the Jews in Judea are not the Americans in Afghanistan or the French in Algeria. We're from here, and this land is our soulmate. But the problem is that, as a result of our own trauma and identity crisis, Israel often behaves like a colonizing power, occupying someone else's land. In many ways, Israel's military occupation of the West Bank actually undermines our real connection to Judea and Samaria. Jewish indigeneity can't just be a pro-Israel talking point to justify Israeli policies or even the state of Israel's existence. Jewish indigeneity should be an identity we internalize in order to move forward. Palestinians are very much victims of a Jewish identity crisis, and that's one of the reasons it's so crucial for us to decolonize Jewish identity. Every people that throws off the shackles of foreign rule needs to engage in a collective post-colonial conversation. Even more so a people that wasn't merely colonized in its own land, but also cast out into the lands of its oppressors for nearly 2,000 years. 
The Jewish people needs to heal, both for our own sake and for the sake of the Palestinians living underneath us. That healing requires a collective conversation that actually confronts what happened to us, identifies how it affected us, and discusses how we can now create a nation-state that expresses the values and identity of our people and its policies and institutions. We should have had this conversation right after our underground fighters succeeded in freeing the land of Israel from British rule in the late 1940s. But instead, our national bourgeoisie political leadership simply took down the British flag and placed a Jewish flag onto the British colonial system. In any case, a lot of what the Daily Beast criticized me for, or rather cited as evidence of me being some kind of wolf in sheep's clothing, was the fact that I'm loyal to the land and Torah of Israel. The writer kept framing it as me being some kind of Orthodox Jew, even though I was very careful to explain to him numerous times, in person and in emails, that I see the reduction of Jewish identity to that of a religion or culture as part of our oppression and colonization that Jews are actually part of a civilization that has spiritual and cultural components, but also has national and territorial components. My commitment to the aspirations of my people stretching back thousands of years is not a religious or political position. It's my identity. When everything else is stripped away, it's who I am. My commitment to the land of Israel isn't political. This land is our soulmate. In fact, my feelings regarding our land and Torah and identity are for the most part the feelings almost every Jew shared before the Roman Empire destroyed our civilization. And these are the feelings that many of us continued to hold on to even in exile for many centuries. They're the feelings our ancestors actually gave us daily exercises and ritual practices in order to maintain and pass on to our children for generations. As far as I'm concerned, to change our positions on these issues is to submit to all those who tried to destroy us for thousands of years. Now that we're finally back in our land again and freer than we've been in so many generations, why would this be the time to suddenly give up on everything we've struggled for so long to maintain? I guess for anyone with an ahistorical conception of Jewish identity and a narrow worldview limited to the ideological paradigms of Western civilization, any Jew loyal to the ways of our people is automatically demonized as some kind of fundamentalist. Which just goes to show the extent to which Western universalism actually demands uniformity. Growing up in New York, I remember superficial diversity being celebrated. Accents and cuisine and maybe even clothing. But everyone was expected to buy into the American dream and the capitalist system and the ideological paradigm of liberalism. And when it came to the values and incentives that drive people to get out of bed in the morning and be productive, everyone is expected to conform. And that's really the big question. Is there space for a Jew who holds true to our people's authentic understanding of Jewish identity and our ancestors' understanding of history's meaning, who identifies with the words of our tefillot and who is not willing to compromise on the historic aspirations of the Jewish people, to be able to look at Palestinian suffering, acknowledge what we've contributed to it, and commit ourselves to making things right without betraying our identity or homeland? Is there space for such a Jew to look at the capitalist system and say that this causes people suffering and humanity can do better? Can a Jew loyal to our identity and the ways of our people, who's not willing to sell out on our homeland or our culture or our historic aspirations, acknowledge that Lenin has something valuable to say when it comes to what drives imperialism, or that Gramsci has something to teach us, about how ideology operates in society? Can Jews participate in struggles against injustice in a way that not only allows us to maintain our authentic identity, but actually becomes a living expression of that identity? And just to be clear, 
when I speak about authentic Jewish identity, I mean that in a very broad sense, and I really don't mean any disrespect to other expressions of Jewishness. But I think it's really obvious from looking at our ancient texts, looking at Jewish practices over the centuries, looking at archaeological finds in this land, pretty much all evidence of our ancient civilization that the Jews living according to the ways of our ancestors and committed to ensuring our own self-determination in the land of our life's blood are the Jews most fully living the story and aspirations of our people. And I do believe that a Jew should be able to struggle against injustice and work to repair the world without having to sell out on our people's homeland identity or basic values. But what I saw being expressed in the Daily Beast is that my commitment to these things are precisely what raises suspicions that there's something dishonest about me. I want to be very clear. Right now, there are plenty of young Jews committed to our people's national story and homeland, but completely ignorant when it comes to oppressive structures that hurt people every day in so many different ways. And there are also many young Jews committed to fighting for those victimized by systemic injustices, but have no real understanding of their own people's story and no real connection to their homeland or Torah. I'm interested in helping to create a critical mass of young Jewish leaders deeply committed to the identity and aspirations of our people, whose sense of indigeneity fosters solidarity with other indigenous peoples, and who are ready to show up for others and fight against injustice, but to do so as their full selves, as the children of Israel. And although the Daily Beast article tried to present me as evasive when it comes to how a one-state solution can allow Jews and Palestinians to both feel our grievances addressed and our aspirations met, the writer knows that I told him and wrote to him on numerous occasions that the key is making the Jewish character of our state much softer and deeper than it is at the present moment. Right now, the state of Israel, which is basically some Jewish decorations on a European-style nation-state, has a very hard and shallow Jewish character that's too Jewish for Palestinians and not Jewish enough for Haredim. Both of these populations are important because along with the national religious Jews holding it down in Samaria and Judea, these are the fastest-growing communities between the river and the sea. But if we stop trying to shove the state's Jewishness in everyone's face and start thinking about what deeply Hebrew state structures can look like, how we organize our society, whether or not our banks charge interest, whether or not we sell weapons to human rights abusers, the socioeconomic ramifications of a Shemitah year, then we can create a situation where each person's awareness of the state's Jewishness would coincide with their level of Jewish knowledge. So a non-Jew or even a Jew less educated in our culture and history, could enjoy the benefits of our system without necessarily seeing it as Jewish, while those deeply knowledgeable would see Jewish values and identity permeating almost every aspect of our state. Haredim and national religious Jews would be living in a deeply Jewish state, while Palestinians would simultaneously experience full inclusion and equality in a democratic society. That's a broad stroke of my vision for a one-state solution, and even if it's flawed or imperfect, I think it should have made it into the piece. One last point on this that I think is worth sharing. Even the parts of the piece where I felt like the writer miscontextualized my ideas or presented me as a caricature of myself, I'd like to believe that even those came less from a maliciousness on his part and more from him simply not understanding a lot of what I say and believe. There were some positions he attributed to me that I don't think I could have said. Something about affection for the Otsma party, and something else about comparing Israel to Denmark, uh, and something else about violent resistance to house demolitions and expulsions. 
That's really not the kind of thing an intelligent person would say to a journalist, whether he would or wouldn't support such a tactic. Anyway, looking back on the entire experience, uh, my expectations might have been unfairly high. But now the piece is out there, and to Be'ezrat Hashem, it should drive people to Vision Magazine and to this podcast so they can learn what I actually have to say. Now let's get back to Jonathan Pollard. I'm obviously aware that there are different narratives when it comes to the Pollard affair. And I think that most of these narratives, including my own, are likely influenced by larger ideological influences. But because this is my podcast, and I have two decades of involvement with the issue, I'd like to briefly share what I understand the story to be. Jonathan Pollard had been a U.S. Naval Intelligence Analyst in the early 1980s, when he discovered information that some of Israel's neighbors were developing weapons of mass destruction with the intention of attacking us. After notifying his higher-ups, Pollard discovered that elements within the U.S. intelligence establishment were determined to withhold the information from Israel, despite us being entitled to the intelligence according to a 1983 Memorandum of Understanding between our two governments. According to high-level officials at the time, the Reagan administration had been cynically violating the memorandum in order to make Jerusalem increasingly dependent on Washington in matters of national defense, so as to more easily advance U.S. interests in our region. Once aware of Washington's betrayal, Pollard had to decide if he was going to follow orders and obey the law or if he was going to warn Israel so as to prevent the killing of innocent people. Even if Pollard wasn't a Jew and the country in danger of being attacked wasn't Israel, I'd argue that this would have still been a very challenging dilemma. But the fact that Pollard was a Jew, and the country being targeted was Israel, definitely added an important layer to his dilemma. A really important piece of context for all this is the fact that for the last hundred years or so, the core collective goal of the American Jewish community has been inclusion, acceptance, and a sense of security in the United States. Even when we discuss the question of Jewish whiteness in contemporary North America, it's important to appreciate that the Jewish, especially the Ashkenazi Jewish, desire for whiteness stems from centuries of very traumatic persecution in other countries, which has in many cases been attributed to us not being part of the dominant groups in those countries. Whether conscious or subconscious, many Jews in the United States have a sense that they're on probation and that their whiteness is conditional. Perhaps more than any other minority group in the United States, Jews seem to feel a constant pressure to prove their patriotism and loyalty. So I imagine that Pollard might have shared these insecurities or was at the very least sensitive to them. And this likely factored into his thought process at the time. Another important piece of context is the failure of the U.S. Jewish community to show up for Jews in Europe during the Holocaust. Stephen Wise, who was essentially the chief rabbi of the Reform Movement and recognized leader of the organized Jewish community, was tasked by the Roosevelt administration with keeping American Jews ignorant and silent. When Etzel operative Hillel Cook, a nephew of Rav Cook, tried to organize demonstrations to pressure the U.S. government to intervene in the Shoah, or to at least allow Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis into the country, the Jewish establishment leadership did everything in its power to silence Cook's activities. FDR had essentially told Stephen Wise, that he and his fellow Jews were quote-unquote Americans, and as such, they were expected to be loyal to the U.S. war effort. Nazi Germany might have claimed that the war was a Jewish war, but it was important to FDR 
that America's Jews don't center themselves. Why isn't the Jewish establishment went along with Roosevelt's agenda? They largely kept their community in the dark about what was happening to the Jews of Europe, and no real pressure was applied for Washington to open the gates to Jewish refugees or bomb the train lines to the death camps, even when the Allied forces were already dropping bombs in the vicinity. The result of all this were that roughly 6 million Jews were systematically killed across Europe, and the Jews in the United States began to attain conditional inclusion into American whiteness. So 40 years later, Jonathan Pollard had a choice to make. Was he going to be an American or was he going to be a Jew? Because at that moment, he couldn't be both. He could either be a good American and follow orders, or he could violate his orders, break the law, and save Jews. I appreciate that this is a very uncomfortable subject for diaspora Jews, but many Israelis believe that when Pollard ultimately decided to break the law and warn Israel of the danger, he was essentially correcting the sin of American Jews during the Holocaust. I'm sure that must be tough for Jews in the U.S. to hear, but that really is how I think it's perceived by most of Israeli society. Israel took the necessary actions to neutralize the danger we were in, but our intelligence agents, specifically Rafi Etan, continued to contact Pollard for more information. I'm sure Eitan made Pollard feel like a big hero, and I certainly hope he was being paid for the risks he was taking. But ultimately, Pollard got caught, and Prime Minister Shimon Peres ordered the Israeli embassy in Washington to abandon him to the FBI. In an effort to avoid an embarrassing public trial, both the Israeli and U.S. governments urged Pollard to enter into a plea agreement. Although the usual maximum punishment for such a crime is roughly four years in prison, and although he was promised a light sentence in exchange for his cooperation, Pollard was condemned to a life sentence behind bars, a punishment considered excessive for passing even highly sensitive information to a friendly country. Pollard was granted Israeli citizenship by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in 1996, as well as official recognition as an Israeli agent. As such, Israel pledged to cover his legal expenses, while U.S. administrations would often use Pollard as a bargaining chip to pressure Jerusalem to submit to U.S. interests. It should also be noted, and this is important, that throughout his 30 years in prison and subsequent five years on house arrest, Pollard consistently refused to be set free in exchange for Israel surrendering portions of our country. That by itself, in my opinion, disproves many of the claims that he had acted for reasons of self-interest. Seeing Jonathan arrive home yesterday was really very emotional for me. I'm honestly so thankful to the Kadosh Baruch Hu for bringing Jonathan home after so many years and so much suffering. Many of us here have been fighting for this a long time. I've been involved in so many demonstrations, so many hunger strikes over the years, and there were definitely times when it really felt hopeless. Seeing Jonathan and his wife Esther come down from the plane yesterday and kiss the ground before receiving a Tudad Zahut, uh, an Israeli identity card from our Prime Minister, was an experience many of us here have been waiting for and fighting for for so many years. But then I saw so many Jews, mostly pro-Israel Jews in the United States, criticizing the fact that Israel was welcoming Jonathan home like a hero. And I saw these Jews trying to peddle claims all over social media that Pollard acted for money and tried to shop classified intel to other governments like Pakistan and South Africa, doing everything they could to cast doubt on his character. The truth is, I understand why they're uncomfortable. The story of Jonathan Pollard threatens everything the American Jewish community has worked for for over a century. 
In many ways, we can see Pollard as the antithesis to APAC. APAC, at its very core, is all about perpetuating an illusion that the U.S. and Israel are eternally on the same team. And to support one's interests is to support the other's interests. But that's just not how reality works. If there's a relationship between two nations and an agenda to make everyone pretend their interests are always aligned, those quote-unquote shared interests will always be those of the more dominant party. By promoting this ridiculous fantasy that the U.S. is Batman and Israel is Robin, Israel has been placed into a situation where we're essentially not allowed to have national interests different from those at Washington Greenlights. Jonathan Pollard's very existence forces diaspora Jews to confront some very difficult questions, just as he had done. But it's clear that rather than actually confront these questions, much of the American Jewish community has found a way to try having their cake and eating it too. What we've been hearing from pro-Israel diaspora Jews and even some high-level Israelis heavily invested in the U.S.-Israel relationship in recent weeks, since Pollard's probation ended and it became clear that he'd be coming home, is that Jonathan is a victim but not a hero. They warn us against calling him a prisoner of Zion, or comparing him to the Jewish refuseniks who sat in prison for resisting the Soviet Union. They say that his sentence was cruel and his treatment in prison was harsh, and all of this must somehow trace back to deep attitudes of anti-Semitism within the U.S. establishment. But not that Pollard had done anything heroic or worthy of Israelis feeling the way we do about him. Even though many of the refuseniks themselves tend to see Pollard as no less a prisoner of Zion than they were. Let's be clear. The organized Jewish community in the United States did absolutely nothing for Jonathan while he was in prison. They didn't want his name mentioned. In fact, most Jewish leaders were probably happy to let him rot and hoped that everyone would just forget he ever existed. He reminded them of a scary truth they didn't have the emotional maturity to face, which says more about their insecurities than about Jonathan or his Israeli supporters. And now that he's finally free, it's actually really disturbing that so many pro-Israel Jews are promoting a smear campaign to paint Jonathan as a victim rather than the hero he is. The man just finished 35 years of unbearable suffering for confronting a fundamental question most Jews in the U.S. are scared to even think about. So because now that they can't ignore him or forget about him anymore, they try to avoid facing what he represents by casting as much doubt as they can on his character and motivations, while at the same time expressing sympathy for his treatment over the last three and a half decades. Now, to be perfectly honest, I can't claim to know for sure what Jonathan Pollard did or didn't do regarding Pakistan or South Africa or anyone else. I don't believe those stories, but then again, I can't know. We're talking about something that happened in the 1980s and involved major intelligence agencies who specialize in misinformation. So I admit that it's hard for me to know what actually happened. The best I can do is say what I believe to be true, based on all of the information I've come across over my 19 years of involvement with the issue. But the fact that Israel's intelligence minister said on army radio today that Jonathan will be receiving a pension or stipend from the state just like all retired Mossad agents indicates that those in our government and intelligence community who definitely know more than I do about what did or didn't happen see Pollard as a hero who acted on behalf of Israel. And just like I can't say I know for sure exactly what happened or didn't happen, neither can all those people trying to drag Pollard's reputation through the mud now that he's finally free. The man just experienced 35 years of suffering. 35 years Don't try to rob that suffering of its meaning just because Jonathan's story and the questions it forces us to confront make you feel uncomfortable or insecure. In any case, I'd like to just take this opportunity to officially welcome Jonathan home. 
and to express my appreciation and respect for all of his suffering and sacrifice on behalf of our people. Having you back is really a dream come true for so many of us. Welcome home. This is Yudaha Kohen of the Vision Movement, and you've been listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Spotify. And please leave a positive rating and review because that can really help us spread these ideas to a much wider audience. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at visionmag.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, if you're interested in supporting the show or sponsoring an episode of either The Next Stage or of our podcast on the weekly Torah portion, please contact us by heading over to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar at the top. A lot of work goes into these podcasts and into running Vision Magazine in general, so you should know that your support is deeply appreciated. And you can check out the show notes for this episode by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 43. 